now into 1 Corinthians, where we look, like, how do you make a transition? You can't. But the thing is, is God's not unaware of brokenness in the world, sin in the world, evil in the world, uh, and we'll see in this passage, even personal spiritual forces that want to cause havoc, break apart the world, break apart marriages, break apart families, break apart societies. And so it's like just coming to this and saying, wow, this does make sense of all the brokenness we see. It's true. So we're going to see that again in the context this, this week um, of marriage and sex within marriage and how thinking about that properly, praying for God's wisdom can lead uh, to a kind of strength in marriages that doesn't allow that brokenness, evil, to creep in and cause destruction. Now, this topic of marriage is going to come um, amidst an entire chapter. Chapter 7 is going to talk about all sorts of ways in which we need to think about marriage and remarriage, divorce, singleness, celibacy. And so we're going to get into that in the next couple of weeks. I was telling uh, Ben Thompson, I said, this feels like the playoffs. It feels like every week really matters. <laughs> You're like, I don't get a break. So um, if you've been with us the last several weeks, intensity, intensity. So anyhow, here we go again. Um, and the thing is, is this, this book and studying this and, and proclaiming this, getting these words out into the ether is part of God's plan. The word of God is like seeds. And, and so we're sowing these seeds now, and we're praying that they find uh, good soil in our hearts, but that's not the end of it. So I just want to say that up front. Like, um, so many stories. Every marriage has its own story. Um, every person has their own story when it comes to these uh, realities. And so um, what you need to do is receive the word like a seed, and then you water and nourish the word through prayer and meditation and conversation with uh, trusted confidants in the faith. And so you, you can't just, like everything, you can't just, I hope this isn't the last thing you hear about this word, that you come back to it and you meditate on it. You pray, God, reveal to me, bring fruit in my life, fruit in my marriage through this word. So I just want to say that because I know I preach long sermons, but inevitably I can't say everything I want to say about this topic, Okay. Uh, it's too big. And in fact, Paul himself is not trying to write a grand thesis. This isn't Paul's PhD dissertation on what is Christian marriage, okay? It's really important. We'll get into uh, why that is. Um, but it is profitable. First Timothy, or 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired, literally means breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so today, as we talk about sexual intimacy within marriage, I hope that you leave today clear about how getting this area of your life, um, we don't ever get it perfect or right, but, but clear, we get clear in this area of our life, when we grow in this area of our life, that it's essential to being complete and equipped for every good work that God has for you in the rest of your life, right? So it's so important to remember 
that um, the Bible is not disconnected, that your life is not disconnected. So getting, growing in this area, letting the Bible teach you and correct you and train you in righteousness in this area of your life affects all other areas of your life. That make sense? That's so important. This isn't just like one-off. Don't compartmentalize your life like it's disconnected. If, if you fail to grow or you allow one area of your life to be uncultivated by the word, it will seep in and affect all other areas of your life. Very important. Now, for those of you who are not married, currently, that could be you once were married and you're no longer married. Paul has a category for you. He'll talk about that, and then we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. For those of you who have never been married, for those of you who had a spouse die, there's lots of reasons why you might not be worried. I, I, I don't want you to tune out, okay? Because Paul himself, at this time in his life, was unmarried. Now, many think he was married previously, that perhaps his wife passed away or maybe um, abandoned him, but he's unmarried. Jesus was himself unmarried. You think Jesus cares about Christian marriages? Of course. Now, you may one day become married, and that's why just listen closely, prepare yourself. You may never be married, and Paul will say, and that too is a good thing. But there's still principles here and benefits of hearing this word and cultivating this word that will help you and help you help others. So stay tuned, okay? Don't, don't check out. So as we read this passage, just tr- try um, as hard as you can not to get uh, in your mind taken onto a rabbit trail or, or freak out. <laughs> okay, just don't freak out. Um, one of the things you have to remember here is that marriage wasn't exactly the same then as it is now. Lots of similarities, but um, the legal part of it was much different. In fact, um, in, a, in a Roman background in which the, the people Paul's writing to would have been familiar, oftentimes marriage was seen more as a, a mere instrument of convenience. And so it could be annulled simply with just these words, tuas res tibi habeto, which means what? Like you just say that. Particularly husbands could say this to wives. Take your things and go. And the marriage annulled. So just listen to Paul's words, the seriousness with which he talks about this responsibility and this joint covenant to love one another in this. It's it's truly, and we'll get into this, it's so revolutionary, you can't imagine how revolutionary this would have been to the ears hearing it for the first time. Just, you just have, I mean, just tee it up and we'll get into this. And, but just particularly as a woman in this culture, to hear what Paul's about to say. And it's because of Paul that we thankfully don't think, in many ways, don't think like that anymore. But just listen. You ready to read it? Now that I've created so much anxiety and tension. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Now remember, Paul has just finished, if you're here last week, he's just finished talking about the deep, destructive force of sexual immorality, which he said is any sex outside of the covenant of marriage. 
but it has this deep destructive force. So you could have read that if you didn't say anything else. You'd say, man, sex is just, it's not worth the risk. Then he goes on. Chapter 7, verse 1. says this. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, so it seems like he's responding to something the Corinthians had asked him about in a letter. If you're reading in my Bible, or, or a pew Bible, this is what you're going to read. I think this is a bad translation, by the way, and I'll get into that in a second. He says, about what you wrote about. It is good, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. A better translation of that, and if you have a different version of this same translation, the Christian Standard Bible, they've changed it since writing this. I'll explain, I'll explain why. So I'm going to read it as I think it should be for this first time. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's the most clear translation. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again. Have sex again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am, which is what? Unmarried. But each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, and another has that gift. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them to remain as I am, unmarried. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. Okay. Now, why did I make such a big deal about the mist- what I think is a, is a poor translation here? So in my version of the CSB that many of you are probably looking at, it says, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. This is obviously true. This is a true statement, and you see why they changed it. They probably are worried about somebody like reading this and not understanding the historical context, the literary context, and so they sort of just put a truce. That's true. So Paul would agree with that. Um, but that's not what actually the Greek says. Like I said, uh, a better translation is, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Or the most, lots of translations will say it's good for a man not to touch a woman, which is a euphemism for having sex. So why is the first translation so misleading, um, in my opinion? So right now we're doing a little bit of just context. Because what Paul's actually doing in this section, like I said, it's not his dissertation, it's not his clear teaching on, I'm going to preach a sermon on what Christian marriage is. He's responding to a very specific question that the church in Corinth, that he helped to start, had asked him. They'd probably written him a letter and they'd asked him this question. So he's either summarizing this position or they wrote these exact words. And what's probably been happening is that the Corinthians... Uh, because of some combination of perhaps Stoic philosophy or um, 
other things that Paul had said about sexual immorality and the danger of it and the distraction of it, they had started to teach, or there was a teaching that was sort of becoming passed around in the community that, hey, maybe it's better even within marriage to abstain from sex to seek the holier things of communion with God. So people were saying, like, actually, even though it's not sexual immorality to have sex within marriage, perhaps sex just sort of distracts and there's a higher spiritual plane. Christian asceticism, or even religious asceticism of any kind, teaches this sort of thing. And it was creeping in, and Paul very practically says, in a very nuanced and loving way, that's not exactly right. Now, he doesn't flat out say, you're idiots, <laughs> you're completely wrong. He didn't do that, because he loves them, he cares for them. And he's going to say, there is a place, there is a good, a good, to abstaining from sex. And he calls, that, calls people who are not yet married to ask God for that gift, the gift of celibacy, the gift he says he has. He says, that's actually, that is a good, but within marriage, it's not good. So just to be very clear, Paul is pro-sex in marriage. If you read the email this week, you might have been just on the edge of your seat. Paul is like, definitely, guys, don't try to be holier than thou. Y'all should be enjoying sex. Okay. Probably should have mentioned, if there's kids in the room, you know, there's a great kids' ministry upstairs. But, no, this is part of life. God created this. You can't get away. You get, in, get to it in the first few books of the Bible, okay, or a few chapters of the Bible. It's just a part of life. We, don't, we shouldn't be embarrassed to talk about sex. We shouldn't be embarrassed to talk about sex within marriage. That'll be one of our big takeaways for today. So Paul says, yes, it is not holier to abstain from sex in marriage. It is not the higher way. It doesn't take you into this other spiritual plane. But there is in marriage, you saw him say, perhaps a time where you do abstain, where you do come into a mutual agreement that for a season we are going to abstain to seek prayer, the face of God. We'll talk about that in a second. But generally, he says, he's going to say marriage is the normal way. Most people will get married, Paul. It's very much for Christian marriage. And he's saying, most of the time in your marriage, you should be sexually active, except for perhaps a time, and in that time, there is a good. You see the nuance here? Paul, Paul is not giving us hard and fast lines. He's saying, this is the contest of how to think about this, and then within your own marriage, you have to figure out how to play this out. This is going to look different for each and every marriage. So, so why does he take this time to talk about this? Why is he so adamant that we can't get this wrong? I can't just let this teaching that I've heard that's going on go without uh, discourse. Because, he's going to say, like he did in chapter 6, we're not just talking about the physical here, we're talking about the spiritual. There is something about sex that is this combination of the physical and the spiritual. And so if we neglect... The physical, whether we recognize it or not, it is affecting our connection spiritually as well. So we have to take this very seriously so that sexual immorality, like we talked about last week, uh, another way to translate that word is fornication or sex in any other way outside of the confines of husband and wife, 
doesn't come in and destroy you spiritually. That's why it's so serious to Paul. If you don't have this gift of singleness, this gift of celibacy, which is a supernatural gift not to, be, to burn with desire, and you're not being thoughtful and attentive to the sexual needs of your partner in marriage, you are naively creating room for the destructive elements of sexual immorality to creep into your marriage. Not good. So Paul's going to help us think about that. He's going to say, listen, marriage and sex, they go together. That's God's design. I love this quote by uh, one scholar I read from this week. D. Wright says this. I love this. He says, by divine appointment, marriage and sexuality go together, as do singleness and abstinence from sex. So what God joined together, human beings should not separate. You may have heard this line in a wedding before, right? What God has joined together, let no man separate, right? You've heard this? Why do we quote that at weddings? Well, because Jesus said that. Jesus said, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. This is a spiritual and physical union. And the two will become one flesh. Paul just talked about that. He just quoted that in the last few verses in chapter 6. So, Jesus continues, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Matthew 19. So this is a clear teaching of Jesus about what marriage is meant to be, what marriage does physically and spiritually. And D. Wright cleverly sort of brings that idea into this idea of sex and marriage are joined together by God. That's his design. Let no man separate. And singleness and abstinence from sex are joined together. Let no man separate. So I just love that picture. Like Paul's saying, why are we trying to do anything that, God, that is against God's design? Even not having sex within marriage. That's the whole context. People saying, maybe we should just not have sex in marriage. Paul's like, stop trying to undo what God has put together. To put it another way, Paul is making it very clear that this thinking is wrong, which says that married couples should avoid sexual relations. They should most definitely have sex and as much as necessary, depending on the healthy needs of each partner, respectively. David Garland, another uh, commentator I read this week, summarizes Paul's thoughts this way. Paul, Paul's pulling his hair out just a little bit, saying, be smart. David Garland says this, human nature should not be overtaxed because it will succumb to temptation. That's all Paul's saying. It's so practical, so loving, and it is very much in line with what God has said elsewhere in his scripture. Guys, you're human creatures <laughs> created by God. So if he's brought you together in marriage, don't test your human nature. It will succumb to temptation. It will. So, that's clear. But Paul does it in such a way, as I've mentioned already, that he's not saying there's not a good. There's not a good. In fact, he'd say there is a very good reason to desire the ability 
to live the celibate life. And he says, for those of you, and we'll talk about this more next week, for those of you who God's called into a life of singleness or a season of singleness, God can and will give you the gift of celibacy. Meaning, he gives you the good gift to not to transcend even this human nature. And it's a beautiful gift. So he doesn't want to just throw it out and say, like, there's no good in it. Because he would say, for me, God's given me this gift, and it's to God's glory that I don't burn with desire. So it is, it is good, but it's just not, God doesn't give you both gifts. He doesn't give you the gift of marriage and the gift of celibacy at the same time. You see that? God gives different gifts to different people, and he's just saying, don't confuse the two. So that it is a good, it's not evil, but it's only good in a certain context in a certain way. I just love the beauty and the thoughtfulness of Paul. That's why I'm, I'm hanging on this. Um, it can be so easy to think the Bible is just this rigid, this is how people portray the Bible. It's this rigid rule book. There's no moral thoughtfulness to it. It's just not true. The nuance here, the understanding that comes from the inspiration of God for Paul to be able to speak about these issues in such a lovely way so that no one's left out, so that no one's without a gift to help them live a holy life in this area, it's just amazing. And he's going to go on the rest of the chapter talking about all the ways in which this plays itself out. And it's always seeking some higher good, which is God's glory, God's mission in the world and the fullness of enjoying the good gifts he's given. So, thank you again, Paul. Like we said last, thank you, Paul, for the help. We need help in this. So, one of the things you'd notice as you read this chapter, and you'll notice it as you keep reading, this is like a weird portion of Scripture where Paul says like, well, the Lord says, and then, and then he'll say, we've got an amber alert. I heard that. Um, Paul will say, the Lord says this, and then he'll say, but I say this. This is my opinion. And you might read it and be like, wait, is, is Paul saying, like, just to give you an example. In verse 10 he says, to the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. And then in verse 12 he says, but I, not the Lord, say this to the rest. You say, like, well, is he saying, like, some of this is, like, divine scripture and some of this is just my opinion as a man? The answer is no. What he's saying, anytime he says, not I but the Lord, he's actually saying Jesus himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, he talked about this. And I'm just regurgitating what he said. And then when he says, not I, or sorry, but I, not the Lord, he's saying, listen, Jesus didn't speak specifically about this particular instance, but he'll say, I and my opinion, are as one who has the Spirit of God. So he's very much aware that some things Jesus has already talked about, and he's just reminding people of it, and then there's other times where he's giving new insight that he believes is inspired by the Spirit of God. And so all this is to say, it's all the Word of God. And um, some people wonder about that when they're reading these things. So... Next question you might have of this passage. Does Paul believe that the only reason to get married is to avoid burning with sexual desire or to avoid falling into sexual immorality? Is that what Paul's saying? Does he have this very bleak view of marriage that it's 
It's just a safeguard. So some people read this and they're like, this guy. <laughs> like, I feel bad for this guy. Again, I hope it's becoming clear now that that's not true. He's responding to one particular teaching that was coming up in the church. In the New Testament, all the letters are written to specific circumstances at specific times, and they teach us general principles. So you can go other places and find Paul talking about marriage in other ways. And you can go other places and find the Bible talking about marriage in other ways. So Paul is saying this is one very important reason to get married, to stay married, to be thoughtful in marriage. But he's not saying this is the only reason why we need marriage. So I just want to very quickly say I could think of at least seven reasons the Bible talks about to get married. So I want to say this to you because I don't want you leaving here with a a very shallow view of marriage. Marriage is amazing. Marriage is wonderful. And marriage also helps you not fall into the temptation of sexual morality. So here are the seven reasons I thought of after studying the Bible. Okay. Number one, procreation. Clear enough. Okay. Number two, parenting, which is slightly different than procreation. And they're going to have P's, by the way, if you like alliteration. P, parenting. Like studies show, not just Christian households, but families that have two parents, a father and a mother, the kids are more adjusted. It's, it's just a, it's a truism in the world that marriage is helpful. A healthy marriage is helpful for parenting, creating a loving environment to nurture children. Third P, pleasure. The pleasure of intimate love including eros love, romantic love, sexual love, but also the joy of companionship and friendship and having someone near. There's so much pleasure in marriage. Fourth P, provision. Oftentimes, we need each other to provide food and life and enough money to live. So there's provision. And this would particularly be true back in the ancient world. You know, There is provision. It's good to get married because we can provide for one another. The fifth P, partnership. Partnership is this, working together to accomplish a variety of purposes and plans that God has given you in this life. For most people, they need help. Adam in the garden needed help. Couldn't do all the things God had called him to do alone. So he created marriage, a partnership to accomplish all the things God has planned for you in this life. The sixth P, picture painting. This is is not like the movie Ghost with the the, the pottery. I don't know what I'm talking about. That's an old reference. Don't don't look it up. It's intense. Patrick Swayze, so good looking. Okay. Picture painting, what does this mean? Ephesians 5 talks about this. Paul has this in mind that And the Bible as a whole always talks about this picture of God and his people as like a marriage. And so he says the marriage covenant of a man and a woman, it's like a picture for the world of what covenantal love looks like. Sacrificial love looks like. So by your marriage, you're painting a picture for the world to see what the love of God is like. Obviously, if you're leaning into the love of God, you're probably going to paint that picture with the kind of brush strokes that most closely aligns to the way God loves you. And the world gets to see that. So Christian marriages should look a bit different 
because they're infused with the love of God. They should be beautiful pictures of what mercy and grace and mutual submission and self-sacrifice look like. So picture painting. And then finally, the last one, protection against sin, which Paul is, number seven, he's addressing here. This is really the only one he's addressing here. Number seven. So each, so you can think about it this way. Each and every um, good reason for marriage is sort of at, in danger because of this seventh. Like if you allow sexual immorality to creep in to your marriage and break it apart, the whole house of cards falls, right? You're not going to be doing any procreating if your marriage falls apart. You're not going to be parenting together. You're not going to enjoy the pleasure and intimacy of love together. You're not going to have the provision that you once had as a husband or wife. You're not going to have a partnership to work together. And you're not going to get to paint a picture. All because you neglected number seven. Letting your marriage protect you against the sexual desire and temptation that comes for all of us. So Paul says, this is really important. Let's not not be naive. We will all be tempted. Satan is real. Let your marriage be one of the things it was meant to be protection against, to diminish the power and effect of that temptation so that all the other good things can flourish to God's glory and your good. See that? Thank you, Paul. Now, you see the combination there of the integration of body and spirit, right? Of the common things of humanity. I thought of another parallel to that. I thought I'd just share it with you. I can, I can also think of six reasons why the Bible tells us to eat food. <laughs> and I just want to show you there's so much more to these things than at first glance. You say, why do you eat food? Well, because I'm hungry. No, there's six Ps. Okay, so ready? Why do you eat food? Physical growth and maturity. If you don't eat food, you will not grow physically. You will not mature mentally, emotionally, and otherwise. Number two, why do you eat food? Pleasure. It's your taste buds explode with goodness. That's a great reason to eat food. People, why do you eat food? P- uh, food creates community and fellowship around the table. It's one of the amazing um, parts about food and God's behind it all. Protection. Why do you eat food? To protect your body against disease and unhealth and malnutrition. Why do you eat food? Picture painting. Food creates this great picture of God and his family gathered around a table, a shared table. And God gives us these pictures in his scripture of this great wedding feast. Well, there'll be great feasting together with Christ. And then finally, why do you eat food? I think to protect against sin. What do you think? What do you mean? Well, if you've ever experienced somebody that's hangry, you know exactly (laughs) what I'm talking about. If you yourself, and if you say, I don't know anybody like that, you're the person. (laughs) You're the person. Typically, God, especially in marriage, makes one person particularly prone to hangriness and the other person a little bit more free from it so that you can work together for the good. So the hangry person, they get out of sorts and the unhangry person can say like, Let's get a hamburger. This is all hypothetical, by the way. Um, So what happens when you get hangry? All kinds of sinful vices creep in, don't they? 
If you're prone to be verbally abusive, if you haven't eaten, you will become more prone to, to fall into that vice. Remember chapter 6, that was part of the vice list, being verbally abusive. Outbursts of anger, another, from another vice list in Galatians 5. When does that happen most? If you're not being very careful to make sure you're properly nourished, that you're eating enough. Crude joking, that's from a vice list in Ephesians 5. Probably crudely joke if you're angry. Your humor becomes debased, doesn't it? Lacking self-control, recklessness, that comes from a vice list in 2 Timothy. Man, that happens a lot more when you're not eating properly. Quarrelsomeness and bullying, again, you fall into these common vices, and some are more prone to them to other degrees than others when you don't eat as God intended that you eat. So eating food, being properly fed, there's all sorts of reasons, and one of them is to protect yourself from falling into the, com- the, com- the temptations that are common to us all, including falling into sexual immorality. If you don't eat properly, if you're not eating healthy, I guarantee you, you'll be more prone to falling into the temptation of sexual immorality. If you feel like the temptation's coming at you strong, a great piece of advice, this isn't related to this passage, is go eat something. And it's probably best that you drive in your car to go eat something, to get away from the temptation. Fill your body with the energy it needs to fight temptation. So you see why I'm bringing this up? There are parts of just the natural way that God has made us, our biology, that we can partner with to help us avoid the spiritual temptation that comes with sin. We do it with food, and we should think about that with sex within marriage. So many parallels. We probably have too small of a view of God's design for both food and sex within marriage. Too small of a view of it. We take it for granted. We don't think about it enough. We don't thank God enough for it, and therefore, we don't use it as he's intended. But when we see the full picture, including these, this protection reason, protection against other sinful temptations, and we see the gift that is marital sex, the good gift, the loving gift as given by our good creator, then we start to, to do two things. Worship God better and sin less. That's all good. Now, one last comparison that I want to I show between sex and food. It truly um, highlights the duality of the human experience. We are embodied spiritual beings, meaning that we are neither just biological machines nor are we souls trapped in physical bodies. Both of those would be errors, and errors in teaching within the church over the years, by the way by God's grace, have been worked out of the church. But we can fall back into them. They're common. We are meant to live integrated lives, which is why marriage and food are much more than just one or the other. Like I said, last week we saw the complexities of of the spiritual nature of connecting yourself physically to another human body. That it knits you together at the deepest level, which is why when it's pulled apart, it's so painful. And many people can experience that. Whether they believe the Bible is true or not, They experience, why is that so painful? Because the spiritual reality happens whether you acknowledge it or not. 
Which is to say, Paul is showing us in this passage that biology is important and and the spiritual is important. Having physical desires and needs is important to acknowledge, just like having spiritual desires and needs is important to acknowledge. And if, if in your marriage you fall into the trap of only focusing on one, not the other, you are in for a rough time. God has more for you. And so you just have to acknowledge with your spouse both, both the biological and the physical and the, the spiritual and the soul level. Both are a part of it. And so you have to pay attention to both, which will be one of the big takeaways. You need to talk about this. We're so bad at talking about this in the Christian church because we've been told taboo, taboo, taboo for so long that then once we get married, we say, uh. Okay. Shoot. I gotta fly. I gotta fly. Okay, <laughs> here we go. Like I said, so much to say. And isn't it, isn't it interesting? Paul says, and there is good for a time to do what? Fast from sex. For prayer, just like the Bible talks about fasting from food for a time of prayer. To intensify our dependence and need for God, sometimes it is smart to not eat for a while because you feel your need. It increases your thankfulness to God for the provision of food that he has given, and it draws you in to worship. The same can be true of sex, Paul will say in verses 5 and onward. So it's just a beautiful uh, passage that Paul just, just helps us get honest with this. Now, one of the big things here. Look at this uh, phrase here in verse 4. It says, A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. Now, this, we've got to lead with lament here. This verse has been ripped out of context, used in history for husbands to exert authority over their wives in the bedroom in ways it never should have been, and God will judge those people. And he'll judge you if you do this. Because what is the context? It says, in the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but the wife does. So we lament that this passage has been misused, but it's a beautiful passage. In fact, this in the same way, and Paul puts that little phrase in there to highlight it. He like, and anytime you use extra words when you don't have to on on parchment paper, (laughs) like, that was, you're, you're, you're spending some money there to say, in the same way. So he highlights, in the same way. Husbands, you don't have the right over your own body. Your wife has authority over your body. Her desires, her needs matter just as much as yours do. In the con- like, when this was written 2,000 years ago, you cannot imagine how revolutionary this was. How altering this idea was that just like the husband, the wife has this authority and right over her husband's body, that her desires, her needs matter. Her physical needs and her spiritual needs. It's so revolutionary. You have to realize this. It's so beautiful. Wives were not free in the ways they are today. A husband could divorce his wife for any reason. All he needs to do is say, get your things and go. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. Not in Christian marriages. 
doesn't work like that. We'll talk more about marriage and divorce in a couple weeks. But like, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work in the church the way it works outside the church. In the church, this is the way. Husband and wife equally, they mutually submit themselves to, to each other so that all needs and desires are met. Physical and emotional and spiritual for the glory of God, for the strength of the marriage, for the enjoyment of all the good things of marriage. This is truly a testimony to God's peculiar wisdom, which is the title of our series if you're new, moving in step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ that would have just blown people's minds that Paul's saying this. And we just skirt past it and, and, and we don't see the immense value in what he's doing. This old, weathered, not married Jewish Paul speaks here in a mind-blowing way that God has not created it in the way you think he has. He's created marriage in a totally different way, and it's way more beautiful than you thought. Now, sometimes in our culture, it's very easy and common for people to say, oh, that Bible, I'm done with it. I don't need to look at that. That's a patriarchal book. You heard this? It's a patriarchal book. We've got to get rid of it. In fact, if we could just burn all the Bibles, the world would be a better place. If you hear somebody say that to you, bring them to this passage. Seriously, just, just come to this passage and read this passage and say, tell, tell me what you think this passage is, is teaching. Are you experiencing this in your marriage? Do you have this kind of mutual love and submission in your marriage? Tell me this book is a patriarchal book. I love this passage. Yes, it's been misused. Yes, you could still misuse it. But I just want to tell you, this is God's plan for marriage, and it's beautiful. And the husband and the wife have equal authority over one another's bodies. It's beautiful. A powerful, powerful restriction against any oppressive acts by husband or by wife. It's also a powerful restriction against polygamy, right? What does it say? Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. And each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. Guess when that doesn't work? If there's multiple wives. Because who, whose body is the husband's? I don't know. You see what I'm saying? This is powerful. This is a powerful protection from God's word against all sorts of misuses of power in marital relationships. So, praise God for this. We've got to study it and meditate on it and pray how do we apply this in real life. Now, I want to frame this idea of the right or authority in the proper respect. Because this can be like, what does that even mean? Does that mean like, I have to do whatever my husband wants me to do or I have to do whatever my wife wants me to do in, in the bedroom? The answer is No. Because you have to figure out how to do it together so that both people's needs, desires, boundaries, comfort zones, safety is protected and nurtured and celebrated. So no, that doesn't mean that this passage is saying, well, whatever so-and-so wants, then I've got to do it. No. So what does it mean? Well, let's remember what Paul said elsewhere in the letter. It has to agree. All of it has to agree. So whatever having the right or authority over your spouse's body means, it has to also mean what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13.5. What does it say there? 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Love is patient, 
Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable. And it does not keep a record of wrongs. So whatever this means, it has to also mean this kind of love. What else does Paul say in this same letter? Chapter 10, verse 31 to 33 says this, Whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. That includes in the bedroom. I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage. So whatever this means about having right or authority over your spouse's body, it means not seeking your own advantage. There's no greed in this. Because you have to follow all of God's word, not just a few passages that you like. What does Paul say in verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 33? He says, A married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. So whatever kind of love this is that's, that is honest about needs and desires and wants has to be not self-seeking, not seeking your own advantage, and pleasing your spouse. So you've got to do all of it. You don't get to pick and choose which parts of 1 Corinthians you believe. And when that's done, there's a beautiful, a beautiful result. When we each take, husband and wife, take serious this responsibility to tenderly, sensitively, carefully steward the body of your spouse in all intimate affairs, it's beautiful. It glorifies God. Now, you will only do this. You will only care about glorifying God. You will only be tender and sensitive and careful and not seek your own advantage if what? Well, not necessarily you won't, but it will be hard to do this consistently if you don't remember last week's passage, which is what Paul says in, in 6.19. Let me read it for you. He says this. He says, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Again, it's all connected, meaning you will seek to tenderly, sensitively, carefully, lovingly live out chapter 7, 1 through 9, if you also remember that your partner is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that God has bought your partner's body with his own blood. When you recognize that, don't you think you will be careful about how you apply this passage about having a right over your spouse's body? I think you will. Remember what Paul says back in chapter 3, verse 17 of this same letter? What does he say? I'll quote it for you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. You see this? You've got to read it all in context. We just kind of jump in here because we've got to preach it slow. There's a lot to do. But like, read it in all its context. If I believe all those other things, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to live into this passage very carefully, very prayerfully, very thoughtfully, and, and love my spouse well. And the final thing is this. If chapter 6 is true, God has already told you that for the believer, he has ultimate authority and right over your body. God has said, I've bought you with a price. 
So the authority or the rights that we're talking about in the marriage relationship are subordinate to God's ultimate authority and right. And when you get that hierarchy correct, it's incredibly protective against the misuse of any authority or right in the marriage relationship. I'll tell you, this is a, this, so I'll be clear, this is, hypoth- this is a hypothetical, this isn't a true story. But God has called me to use my vocal cords, the breath of my lungs, my mind, to proclaim his word on Sunday mornings. If Allie, my wife, says, you know what, I'd like to just spend the morning, you know, in, you know just enjoying a nice slow morning, laying in bed, enjoying one another's company, you know what I say to her? God's already got my calendar Sunday morning. His authority supersedes your authority. Now, she asked me that on Monday morning, which is my day off, and a buddy of mine calls and says, hey, I got a tea time, 9 o'clock. <laughs> and Allie says, no, I'd like to enjoy a slow morning lying in bed together. I say, sorry, buddy, my wife's got this calendar slot locked up. That's the way it works. I use that sort of funny analogy, again, not a true story, um, but I use it to just say, you know, Grayson asked me the other day, he's a clever fella, this is my seven-year-old, he, he, I, I said, Grayson, because he was not obeying, I said, you know, the Bible says, <laughs> Jesus says, you should obey your parents, and Grayson, being clever, says, well, you know, Dad, uh, okay, but what if you guys asked me to sin? Dang. I was like, you got me. <laughs> it's not an always time, right? What's happening? He's saying, yeah, in the same way. Like, you should obey your parents unless they ask you to do something that God has forbid. Or if God has asked you to do something else and your parents say, I want you to do this instead, and you're sure that God's asked you, yeah, God's authority supersedes the authority of your parents. In the same way, in the marriage relationship, God would never want you to do something that he has not sanctioned or called you to in the marriage relationship. So there's a hierarchy to this. Which is... Now, just to be totally honest, this is one of the reasons why I, would not, I do not encourage people to marry an unbeliever. Because if you don't have this hierarchy in mind, I can't be sure that that your spouse sees themselves underneath the authority of Christ. And it's going to make marriage harder. I trust Allie. It's easier for me to trust her because I know she submits to Christ as Lord. And that she would never ask me to do anything that she knows Christ would not be okay with. Do you see that? It's just one of the reasons... Why And Paul will get there at the end of chapter 7. He'll say, if, if you find yourself divorced or unmarried, he'd say, you can be remarried, but do so in the Lord. That's in verse 39. Because when you both have this hierarchy of authority, then you can come into these discussions on equal ground. Now, if you are married to somebody who's not yet a Christian who doesn't read the words of Paul and and see them clearly because they don't yet have the Spirit of God illuminating them. This doesn't mean that you don't... Paul will say this. He's not saying, don't divorce that person. He's saying, don't... like. I don't think Paul would say, keep 
keep your sexuality away from them because it's not safe. He's not saying that. But I do think he would say, you know, be cautious. Be prayerful. Understand that Christ still has ultimate authority over your body. And so don't allow your spouse to drag you into something that's going to be detrimental to you physically or spiritually. And if they do, find a way. Separate. Remove yourself from that. God does not want his children to be abused in any way, to mis- be mistreated in any way. Like I said, there's so much to say. Now, what about verse 5? This is really important. Do not deprive one another of sexual relations within marriage, except when you agree for a time to devote yourself to prayer. Then come back together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, he then goes on in verse 6 to say, I say this as a concession, not a command. And there's lots of ink spilled about what's a concession. I think most would agree. The concession he's talking about is not the whole uh, verses 2 to 5. He's talking about just verse 5, that last part of verse 5, where it says, um, you know, come back together because of a lack of self-control. He's just saying, listen, I'm not commanding that you, how long you would stay apart. This isn't a command that you have to do this for a time of prayer. He's just saying, this is a good idea. And I'm not commanding you that you have to come back sooner than you think you should or whatever. He's just saying, I'm saying this as a concession, like this will happen if you, if you aren't thoughtful about this. So there are seasons and times in your life as a married couple where you were, you'll come together, and the key word here is, and this is again revolutionary, to make a mutual decision together. Like, hey, let's take a season here. You know, Paul's saying, don't let it be too long, but a season of... Uh, Fasting and praying, but we're all in agreement on it. We're not making this unilaterally. This is us coming together and talking about how we should do this for a season of fasting and praying. Just a a quick application here. Again, I think it's revolutionary if you really apply it. Make sure you're not talking about your sex life more with your friends than you are with your spouse. In fact, this is such a precious, intimate trust that you do not want to break. That would be very, very hesitant to ever talk with you know, sib- you know, your siblings, your family, about your sex life, particularly if you've not asked permission from your spouse. Because these are decisions that you'll make together. And when that trust gets broken, it's hard to repair. It is not a safe place anymore if, if your spouse finds out you're talking about or making decisions with other people rather than with them. So come together, mutually decide, we're going to take a season to pray. So what are some reasons you might fast from sex in your marriage? The clearest, creating space and time for a deeper, more focused intimacy with God. So reconnecting with God, seeking inspiration from God, seeking empowerment from the Spirit. Maybe we'll take a break from coming together in sex so that we can just, for a season, I would say short season, come together and hear from God. There could be medical reasons related to childbearing or post-pregnancy. There could be seasons of stress or, or injury where you say, you know what, let's just take a break. I don't want you to think I don't care about you, but let's talk about this. I just think I need some time to recover. Making a big decision. We could say we have a really big decision to make. Uh, let's fast from our sex life so that we can seek God's will 
that it might strengthen our discernment. There could definitely be other reasons. Paul is definitely not saying that in order to pray or connect with him, you have to abstain from sex in the marriage. He's definitely not saying that. You can pray to God and seek God and hear from God while also uh, having your regular uh, marriage intimacy as well. But there could be a time, like with food, that you fast so that your spiritual life and your natural life are exposed in a new way to God for a season. Paul says, but don't be foolish. Come back together again soon so that you don't provide space for this real spiritual enemy to get in between you. And that's why I I, want to, last thing to say about the text here is, why did you have to bring up Satan? Like, why did Paul have to bring him into it? Isn't the flesh enough, the biology enough, the human sex drive enough? And the answer is no. There are other things involved here. Sin is, yes, a temptation of the flesh and the world is, you know, and the culture and the market. It's all going to, but there's also spiritual realities at play when it comes to your sexual life in marriage that are trying to get in between you. Spiritual forces that are opposed to God are real. They're unseen. It's going to be hard to know exactly, but just know they exist. And you need to be so smart together to acknowledge that that's real. Just don't play with one hand behind your back. Acknowledge, pray in the name of Jesus, If you feel like there is anything coming in between your marriage that might be spiritual in nature, thoughts, actions, anger, where did that come from? In the name of Jesus, I pray against these thoughts. Okay. Thank you, God, for these two great helps. And we'll get into the second help, which is the gift of celibacy, sometimes called the gift of singleness. God says, don't fall into sexual immorality. For those of you who I'm calling into marriage in this season, I'm going to give you a spouse to help you fight against that. For those of you who are in a season of unmarriage, I'm going to give you a gift of celibacy. And I want to say this. Are you praying for both gifts? Or are you only praying, if you're unmarried, for the gift of marriage? It's not wrong to pray for that. I just say, make sure when you're praying for that, you're also praying for the gift of celibacy that Paul had. That's a good gift as well. One's not, it's not like there's one good gift and one unfortunate gift. Both are good gifts. Pray for both gifts. And there may be seasons in your life where you have the gift of celibacy and seasons of your life where you have the gift of marriage. Whatever season you're in, thank God for the gift he's given you and pray for the gift that you need in order to live out holiness in this era of your life. So, just to recap, Paul, marriage is good, marriage is not bad, In fact, it's normative for most Christians, though some will be called to it and gifted by God to live into it, and some will be called to celibacy and singleness, and God will gift them for that. Sexual asceticism is not holier than sexual activity in your marriage. Um, Third, sex in marriage is fully compatible with Christian holiness, and and actually, um, it's integral to God's design and purpose for marriage. And fourth, there are periods, short periods of agreed-upon abstinence in marriage that is also good, but it's not an ultimate good. It's just a temporary good. And so Paul makes that all very clear here for any of the Corinthians that might have been confused, for any of us that may have been confused. So I just want to close with a few tips 
for sex and marriage. And, and these first tips, he's like, Dave, did you know this would be part of your job when you signed up? No, I didn't know I was going to do this, but here it goes. I actually had, it was providential. I had an appointment with my counselor this week, and I just said, hey, I know this isn't part of our contractual agreement, but could I get some sermon prep advice from you? And, you know, he works with a lot of uh, people, and I asked him. He said, you should, you should mention this. He said, in the marriage partnership, there are many issues that you'll have different levels of desire for, right? He used the example of, like, some of you will really love going on morning walks. Others, rather stay in the house. And you'll have to talk about those. It doesn't mean you never walk, but maybe you don't have to walk every day as a couple, right? So some people have high desire for certain things. Some people have lower desire for certain things. And the same is true when it comes to sex. And it's just important to acknowledge that. Because what he said, and I think this is so important, often the person with a lower level of desire when it comes to sex ends up feeling false shame around their lack of desire. They feel like some, something's wrong with them. And they feel all this shame. That is not from the Lord. That's from the enemy. People have different levels of desire when it comes to sex within marriage. So just be aware of that. Talk about that. Share that. Don't be ashamed of that. And often, as he said, it's the person with the lower desire that feels the most shame. So if you're in the marriage partnership and you have higher desire, make sure your spouse doesn't feel shame around their lack of desire. Then he also said this. Stress, for some is a sexual accelerator. Meaning when you're stressed, you want to have more sex. Some, stress is a sexual break. It like pumps the break. You have to know this and talk about this in your marriage. Because you might not understand why there is a break being pushed. Or you might not understand why there's a hyper-acceleration. So learn each other so well to say like, to understand that about each other and to love each other through that. Have that conversation in your marriage. For some spouses, arousal is spontaneous. For others, it's responsive. Talk about that. What are the ways in which arousal happens for you in the marriage relationship? Because sex is both a spiritual and a biological need. So don't negate either. Otherwise, you'll fall into error and even temptation. So I thought those are really good tips from somebody who's a professional, and I just wanted to share those with you. I didn't want to steal that just for myself. And um, he also said something that I didn't have my list here, but I think it's important. He said, it's good to laugh. It's good to laugh. This, like I said, this is just a reality that, we, that, that all of us in marriage struggle with. So when you're talking about it with your spouse, it's okay to laugh about it, joke about it, make up funny things. Like, for, <laughs> for instance... Some of you might prefer to come together intimately in the mornings. Some of you might prefer to come together intimately in the evenings. Now often, if you don't prefer it, at the, you know, if it doesn't happen at the same time of the day in the same way, there can be a lot of tension there. So you could do something like this. You could make a funny joke, particularly if you're a mor the morning person. You could say, you could stock up the, the fridge with Red Bull. And you could, you could say, honey, whenever, whatever you need. You see, a little bit of humor is okay. 
This is not, like, we are trying to accomplish all that God has planned for us, the good works that he set before us. And one of the ways is to communicate about this, to laugh about this, because it's funny sometimes how we don't quite do this the same in marriage, right? And when we figure it out, to the glory of God, praise be to God. So my, my tips, so this is no longer my counselor, my tips are this. Communication is key. Communication is key. First of all, when you're communicating about this, don't compare your marriage to other marriages. It's the worst thing you can do. Compare your marriage or the frequency in which you're having sex to other times in your marriage. And then just ask the why questions. I wonder why that's different. Have you noticed that? Are you happy with that? The happiness questions, are you happy with that? So don't compare your frequency to other frequencies. That's the worst thing you can do. Compare it to yourselves and ask the tough questions. Why? Are we, are we happy with this? Is this what we want? Do we need to buy more Red Bull? What, what do we need to do here? Um, if you and your spouse learn to communicate well in this particular area of your life, there's weird calculus happens and plays itself out. And other temptations, not even sexual temptations, seem to work themselves out better in your marriage. And your marriage, it's like this weird thing. It's not the most important part of your marriage. It's definitely not. Like I said last week, the body is not made for sex. Your body is made for so much more. But if you get this right in marriage, or, or more right, and you find satisfaction in this, it's weird how it has this potency... It has this ability to, to improve all areas of your life. So you want to pay attention to it. And it also has the ability, if you, if you don't pay attention to it, to, to grip you in other areas of your life. It's like, it's unrelated, but it does seem to be connected. So you want to just pay attention. And then I just want to bring it back. Mutual submission is what Paul's talking about here, the most important thing. And he talks about that in Ephesians 5 and elsewhere. Mutual submission is so important in this area of your marriage life. Um, and what I don't want you to, to do is when you come to passages like this or passages like Ephesians 5, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't say like, oh, that's so outdated or uh, that can be misused. Don't do that because there's so much beauty in here that actually is what we need in marriages in this, in this world that you just need to let the seed fall, pray about it, talk about it, meditate on it so that you can find life in it. You can find life in it. Um... Tim Keller talks about sex within marriage as analogous to the ordinance of communion, which we'll practice here in just a moment, the Lord's Supper, which we observe each week as a church. Why? Because this physical practice of getting up and walking and ripping off a piece of the bread, dipping it in the cup, which represents Christ's blood, and eating it, is it's like a covenant renewal ceremony. You come to Christ, your baptism is like your wedding day, and then each week you come and you remember what Christ has done for you, that he's rescued you from your sin and from darkness and from Satan, and that he's wanting to put you back together in fullness and wholeness, and that relationship is beautiful, and so we do physical things to remind ourselves of the spiritual truth. This is why we do it each and every week. We need reminders. Christ, the Bible talks about, is the groom and the church is the bride, and in this spiritual realm, we're connected to Christ forever. Christ did not withhold his body from us, but gave it fully to us. And when we acknowledge that and then give ourselves back to him, it's this beautiful act of love. And we remember that through taking his body. 
eating it and remembering we're united to him. I believe sex within marriage accomplishes something similar. When you choose to engage in the conversations about sex within marriage, when you find the rhythm that works for you in your marriage, you are conducting a covenant renewal ceremony where you're reminded of your wedding day. You're reminded of the deep soul-level connection that, that God has formed between you and your spouse. You're reminded to not take it for granted, to be grateful for this gift of a spouse. And God renews that in you. He reminds you of that. He brings you into gratitude. And so this physical act of sex is actually pointing to and bringing us and reminding us of these spiritual realities. And we thank God for that. So don't neglect it. Don't neglect gathering together and taking communion to remember our marriage with Christ. Don't take for granted sex within marriage as a reminder of God's good gift of one another. And I have to just say, because I know there's a lot of pain that has come for many of you in this area of your marriage. It may have led to divorce. It may be leading to loneliness in marriage, pain. I, I just, I want to acknowledge that, that not all of us, in fact, none of us experience the tenderness that we should in this area of our marriage the selflessness that we should. Sex can be used and probably has in many of of our marriages as a bargaining chip. There can often be indifference and coldness. These are just realities of a broken world. And Paul's not denying that. In fact, Paul's reminding us, this is a chance for us to be reminded that this world is broken, that our marriages are broken, that we need Christ We all bring baggage into our marriages because we're sinful people. And so what I want to do now is just lift up Christ. He is the exemplar of the first step towards healing in your marriage. When God the Son, who is Jesus, put on flesh and walked amongst us and gave his body for us, he said, I'm going to give authority over my body to my people the Jewish people, when he first came. He, he made that choice. He gave them that privilege, that authority. What'd they do? They hung him on a Roman cross. And just to be clear, the Bible reminds us it was not just those people then. Our sin, my sin, your sin, held him there on that cross. And Jesus allowed that. Sin was a part of our relationship with Jesus. God chose this so that forgiveness could be won for all those that would turn back to him after taking for granted such a marvelous gift. He came back from the grave and he promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. Now, that's not a blank check of forgiveness, but it requires our repentance, our acknowledgement of sin, our acknowledgement of hurt, our acknowledgement of negligence. But restoration is possible because of the power of God in the resurrection. 
And so there's power in resurrection still available, even if your marriage has been marked by sin in this area. I say all this to glorify God in Christ. It's unreal that God would love us like this. We do not deserve it. And I say this to give you hope in your marriage. If the giving of your body in this way has been the source of deep anguish, pain, hurt, even humiliation, God can and will resurrect this kind of love, his kind of love, in your marriage relationship if you allow the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit to infuse and return to your marriage, to your conversations, and ultimately to your heart. But it will only happen if God's power finds its way back in. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for my friends here, for their patience and consideration. I pray that these seeds would find soft soil, that through prayer and meditation and conversation in the marriage relationship, that new life would be found, that new fruit would come to life, that people would experience your resurrection power in their marriage, and they would experience all the joys and the pleasures and the trust that you desire for the marriage relationship to be, that it might paint a picture of your love for us, of your sacrifice for us on the cross, of your resurrection power and the new life that comes even on the other side of sin and hurt and wound. God, I pray for marriages right now. I pray that they might find another level, a transcendent level of goodness that they didn't even know was possible as they, as they sit under your word, as they pray for your spirit and your power to come into their marriage. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.